Hey, Dr. Bernard here. I wanted to bring some ideas from the last two episodes together and tell you some things I've been thinking about for probably at least the last 10 years. The previous episode was about melanoma. The one before that talked about the French hydroxychloroquine study that happened during the March 2020 phase of COVID-19 pandemic, and it broke down the first clinical study that was done for that drug. Putting everything together, a clinical trial in melanoma that happened 10 years ago in 2010 made some fundamental changes on how we think of drug treatments today. It exposed issues that we knew were going to come up, and these probably going to get amplified again at some later point in time. And I want to tell you my thoughts about how I think medicine, specifically drug development, could operate at some point in the far future. This is a story that was reported in the New York Times, September 19th, 2010. Thomas McLaughlin and Brandon Ryan were cousins. They grew up in rural California, grew up together, Central Valley. They were working men, two years apart in age. In September 2009, Brandon Ryan bought a new Dodge Ram. He called Thomas while in Colorado for a job. Brandon knew that his cousin wanted one of these trucks. He wanted Thomas to come over and help with the work and so that they could drive around together in the truck. But Thomas said on the phone that he had had a pain under his arm, that he had to go to the doctor to get it checked out. He told his cousin that he wouldn't be able to come over to see the truck because those doctors, well, they found melanoma. He told Brandon that he'd need to get surgery to get the lymph nodes removed. Wow, Brandon said, you have cancer? We know if there's a painful lump under the arm in the setting of melanoma, that's a lymph node metastasis. That's the tumor spreading around in the body. Lymph node involvement is minimum stage three, according to 7th edition AJCC guidelines, which were just approved at that time. Having some spread means that the cancer has broken off from the primary tumor on the skin and has entered the bloodstream. The lymph node is the first place that it's going to go. Depending on how advanced the disease is by this point, Thomas could expect to have the disease start to spread to other organs if nothing is done. And it looked like it had already started spreading around. At his surgery, small tumors appeared all across his body. One showed up on his collarbone, one showed up on Thomas's triceps. Things didn't look good, but they looked worse when cousin Brandon also felt a pain under his armpit just a few months later too. Originally, he didn't take it seriously. He didn't think it was a big deal. But in the emergency room in Colorado, the diagnosis was made. Brandon had melanoma too. This was a later stage than his cousin too, because multiple metastases were not just found in his right armpit, but they were also found near his liver, meaning stage four disease. Both cousins had BRAF V600E mutated melanoma, weren't sure if the cancer was somehow in the family because their mothers were sisters and they were diagnosed at almost the same time, despite being two years apart in age. BRAF V600E is a mutation. More specifically, it's a single point mutation to a gene causing a protein that signals to the cell to reproduce and to send those reproduction signals nonstop. The discovery of this mutation was a breakthrough just eight years before this time, where scientists were looking through genetic samples of different melanoma tumors and found this common mutation in many of them. In between the years 2002 and 2008, the BRAF V600E protein was recreated in the lab. It was modeled, and scientists were able to design specific, targeted drug molecules that would fit directly into the active site of the protein and halt activity to stop it in its tracks. Viable drug candidates for testing were available for human trials by the time the two cousins were diagnosed. Because Thomas McLaughlin was diagnosed first, he was enrolled to a trial first. Now during this time, the reality was is that we didn't really have much 
in terms of treatment for metastatic melanoma. From the 1970s, there was chemotherapy called decarbazine, cytotoxic compound that appears to be an alkylating agent, meaning that it will add an alkyl group and inactivate the guanine bases of DNA. That's the G that you see in DNA sequences. Decarbazine sucks. No one liked it in the 70s. No one liked it in 2008. No one likes it today. But in 2008, it was still a standard of care for metastatic melanoma. In Europe, it was the only standard of care for this treatment setting. In the United States, though, there were some immunotherapies that would just bomb the body with cytokines, that is, small proteins that signal to the immune system to act. These were approved for use in the 90s in America. It was generally more efficacious than decarbazine, but the EU disagreed and they didn't approve it for use. Now, the way that changes happen to medical practice is that clinical trial is done. What we do is that we take the current standard of care and we compare it to a new medicine. We select the relevant patients who would get these treatments. We put one group of patients to get the standard of care and a second group of patients on the experimental drug. The experimental treatment has been vetted in animals and have had safety testing done in small numbers of human beings. We set an endpoint for the trial when it's done and what we're trying to measure with these medicines, and then we compare the two of them. In this process, there's a lot of things that need to be done to control for bias. Many times the treatment is going to be blinded, so the patient doesn't know whether they're getting standard of care or experimental treatment. You may have heard of the placebo effect. That's someone taking nothing. But in thinking that they're getting treatment, they quote-unquote get better. Patients are also randomized to different groups. This is done to prevent preferential enrollment of people to a trial. That is, things like putting your friends on experimental treatment, because if you're running this trial, the investigator genuinely hypothesizes that the treatment is superior to standard of care. If they don't, then why do the study, right? So for the trial in melanoma in 2009, it was done like this. In the setting of metastatic melanoma patients, compare decarbazine chemotherapy to an experimental drug that blocks V600E mutated BRAF. One group of patients will get the chemo. The other will get the targeted V600E drug. What's the trial going to measure? It's going to check the overall survival at six months. It's going to get a median progression-free survival, which is the time that it takes for half of the patients on trial to progress in disease, meaning that their tumor gets bigger, more tumors start showing up, etc., then they check for things like how many patients responded to the medicine on each arm, and also how long it took for patients on those therapies to respond. So Thomas was diagnosed first. He was put on the trial first. Because it was randomized, they got the number from the computer, and he was lucky enough to be on the targeted V600E drug arm. He didn't have to be on chemotherapy. This trial wasn't blinded because the V600E medicine is an oral tablet. Chemotherapy was an IV infusion. If they're looking for survival, a placebo effect on someone dying isn't the most probable event to happen. Dude, you have to get on these super pills, Thomas said to his cousin. His primary tumor and metastases shrunk after starting on experimental medicine. Things were looking up. And anyway, Brandon was the one who had more advanced stage 4 disease. When his time came to enroll on trial, he went in. But as the number returned from the computer, the results were in. He was assigned to chemotherapy. Up to this point in time, melanoma doctors have had 40 years of experience with chemotherapy. They knew that it worked in barely 5% of patients with metastatic melanoma, that less than half of the people who are diagnosed are still alive at the one-year point. While in America we may have had immunotherapy in 2008 for metastatic melanoma that was also standard of care, it wasn't approved for use in Europe. 
No matter what, the main issue here is that if in a trial a standard of care is already marginally better than doing nothing, then should you continue the trial to finish? And when I say to finish, keep in mind that I'm saying continue the trial until these patients die. Because with the standard of care, we already know that greater than 50% chance of death before the one-year anniversary of their diagnosis happens. In this particular trial that Thomas and Brandon were on, they knew early on in the trial that more than 90% of patients were still alive at four to five months after starting experimental therapy. I mean, there was a good scientific rationale for this. The drug was specifically designed to fit inside the mutated protein to block its function. But survival at four to five months in the chemo arm was also around 75%. When the chances of something terrible and irreversible happening to you, even 1% is something that will cause many people to reconsider. 90 to 75% is a discrepancy of 15% here, and time still keeps going on. And so in this story reported by the New York Times, two cousins, both in their early 20s, both with metastatic melanoma, the one on stage three disease was put on experimental targeted therapy, and the other one with stage four disease was put on chemotherapy. Chemotherapy that was known to have marginal benefits versus targeted therapy that had an unknown long-term benefit, but appeared to have short-term benefits along with a hot new scientific rationale for working. If just after a few months, we move everyone to the experimental treatment then we wouldn't have a benchmark to compare to to determine efficacy. It would be a lot harder to say that this new treatment really is better overall. But if we run the experiment, we're waiting to get data points. What's a more reality-centered way of putting that? We're waiting for people to die to get data points. Now to be clear, had there been no advances at all and no experiment started for any of this, it is true, all patients would have gotten chemotherapy and all would have had the same result as people had seen in the 40 years before this. But the introduction of a new hopeful compound that was designed specifically for this from a scientific breakthrough discovery, it changes things. So I hope you can see the problem here. The discovery should work. We don't know for sure if it does. And it is true that if we didn't have that discovery that everyone would be stuck with chemotherapy. But a reason they would say, why can't we just use the experimental treatment without comparing to a standard in a controlled environment like a clinical trial is because then we wouldn't be able to know for sure if in the long term the experimental treatment is actually providing long-term benefit. But let's look at the reality. If any of these doctors' lives were on the line, would they honestly say that's fine, I'm gonna be okay with a treatment with less than 10% response rate, and that there's 50% chance that by this time next year I'm not gonna be around and I'm gonna do it for science? Some might. So this brings me to a point of a future in medicine. I'm gonna be honest, this is not something that's gonna happen in my lifetime. And the things I'm going to describe here may be as absurd as French artist predictions of the year 2000 back in the 1800s. And I may be totally wrong, and none of these things will ever end up happening. But for sure, something is going to change in the long term. And it's going to be shaped by the very severe cases of problems that we're already seeing now, just like in Thomas McLaughlin and Brandon Ryan's case. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 
market. Since we created the system of evidence-based medicine that we have today, many of these issues didn't exist in the early 1900s because they didn't run trials like this. Now with a basis in evidence that is high-powered, randomized clinical trials showing benefit, we've been able to achieve better numerical outcomes in terms of number of people surviving from a certain disease or surviving a certain event. These are important to know because then we can look back and say, hey, 20 years ago, we gave this treatment as standard of care. At the one-year mark, 50% of patients were still alive. At the three-year mark, 2% of the people were still alive. But with this new medicine or this new intervention, we have 90% alive at one year and 75% still alive at year three. This is not comparing trial to trial. This is looking at data that we have on patients who have this particular disease. We can measure these outcomes. And for people who are heavily focused on just numerical metrics only, their argument is that when you measure things, they only get better, longer survival, decreased number of side effects, higher quality of life. But the inherent problem to all of these is the central question. How much longer am I going to survive on this medicine versus the other one? How many less side effects will I get with this one over the other? What happens if I get sick while taking this medicine and then I can't use any of these medicines at all? And the question, will this medicine even work for me? Keep in mind, Sometimes things don't work in people and we have to put them on a different medicine. These are all valid questions that can't be answered with the system that we have because we can't compare a large sample size of duplicates of you. At least we can't do that now. So I'm gonna go into opinion territory here. First, if you don't realize that today's evidence-based system is uniquely the Western system of medicine in the 2000s, then I think you may not have the self-awareness to realize that you're the modern day equivalent of a 1400s plague doctor or a blood letter. Now, with that said, the methodology and the rationale for the system that we have today is the best that we can do today. I'm not attacking the current system. I'm saying that there's people in the far future laughing at our system right now because they will have a fundamentally different understanding of the world and the tools to fix some of the pressing problems that we have today. But also in the process, they'll create their own unique set of problems too, and it'll be on them to fix them. The purpose of medicine is to restore function. The purpose of technology unrelated to medicine is to enable people to do things that they couldn't do before, assuming that they had normal function in the first place. If you think about it, these are mutually exclusive. To put it another way, technology is here to save people time. In the most extreme cases, technology enables people to do things that would otherwise take an entire lifetime to do. It relieves us, for the most part, from mundane tasks. Medicine doesn't do that. The fundamental notion of needing medicine is that your body no longer functions as normal and it needs exogenous intervention in order to regain that function. It's not fun. It's not flashy. And from the human aspect, in some cases, having a disease looks like you don't have control over yourself. You're hardly ever going to see a politician publicly releasing pictures of themselves bedridden and ill. We've heard of kings who have had psychological breakdowns. No one back then would have dared to draw a picture of a sick king because it would imply a lack of control over one's facilities. That's why we sometimes struggle with patient stigmas. When people are diagnosed with cancer, some of them will feel as if they no longer have control over their life because it shattered their notion of their own self and what they thought was going to be their future. When you ask someone where they think that they're gonna be in five years, you don't get an answer of, oh, I'm definitely gonna have cancer. No one says that because no one thinks that. It's not built into our notion of self. 
So medicine's purpose is a regain of function to a baseline normal, whereas technology is here to enable people to do things that they couldn't have done previously, assuming that they're at baseline normal function. Medicine is needed to live a human life. Tech is not necessarily needed to live a human life. People were functional 2,000 years ago. Some of the greatest scientists revered today lived 500 years ago, and they didn't have the tech and instrumentation that we have today. So you can get by without having some tech. But in medicine, if you don't have it, you lose life. Those are the fundamental differences. But in the rare instances that they do cross over, both good and bad things happen. So here's an analogy. Think of it like this. Medicine is a tree. Technology is fire. The tree is protected by policies and by people, both of which are water. The fire can't burn down the tree if it's wet, but if something happens to the tree where it loses its access to that water, the fire can burn it down to the ground. This access would be lost in terms of popular support or repeal of some kind of policy or a combination of things. And after that, a bunch of little trees grow in its place when the fire burns out. If medicine somehow loses the support of people, it can be easy for something that enables people to do things that they couldn't have otherwise done before to burn the system down as we know it. And in the aftermath, you'll have some kind of regrowth of several different smaller trees. So the analogy is this. At some point in the future, something is going to happen that's going to anger a lot of people from our system in medicine. You can already see it during this pandemic. The bureaucratic system by design can easily lock anybody out. This is why people say some of these clinical trial startup times are unreal, because in normal times, medicine seems to be time independent. And when people's lives are on the line, our current system of medicine sometimes really does go too far. At some point, it's going to lose the support of people. Try explaining how a clinical trial works to someone in detail. I'm trying to do it right now. If someone isn't inherently interested in this, they probably would have left a long time ago. And the reality is this, we don't know exactly what's going to kick off this change, but it's probably going to be something terrible. Lots of people are going to get sick and lots of people are going to die because of that. And that's what's going to make people angry. And when they withdraw their support and they totally get fed up and we have the proper technology available, then we're going to see a system that makes today look like medieval medicine. Again, you need the self-awareness to understand that some of us are going to look like modern day plague doctors, blood letters, using leeches on patients, which we still do, by the way, on some surgical patients to clean their wounds. Lots of people today wouldn't be able to tell you the difference between the 1300s and the 1700s. And one day, people won't be able to tell a difference from 2020 and 1620. So here's a few of the problems that we have with today's model. One, an individual doesn't know exactly if a medicine will work for them 100%. Response rate isn't always 100%, 100% of the time. An individual will not know how much better this medicine will work compared to another one. When you hear stories of people being told by their doctor that they won't live to see this time next year, that's based on epidemiological data for that particular staging of disease. Some people do in fact beat those numbers, but that's a survivorship bias in that the people who did die aren't alive to tell anybody about it. The second is that we're testing these drugs in a large number of patients and the data may not be directly applicable to you. If the trial was done in a bunch of men, but you're a woman with disease, is there a difference? Clinical experience says that there's differences, so how can you generalize that data? 
A third problem is distribution. Some medicines are not easily accessible, and there's so many reasons why. They might not be able to physically access it because of time, because of disability, or because of mail order distribution is flawed and they're sending it to the wrong address. They may not be able to afford it. Their insurance company won't pay for it and requires substitution of a different compound, or the administrator of the insurance company doesn't know the difference between brand name and generic name, which is an absolute disgrace. Fourth, it can be difficult to substitute for another medication if in the case the patient develops a different disease that happens to be a contraindication. Take for example a cancer patient on PD-1 checkpoint inhibitor in 2020. What happens if they get COVID-19? While it's rare, both of these could cause cytokine release syndrome. Then what do you do? This isn't an exhaustive list, there's more problems that can come up, but suppose that these are on the top level. What technologies would need to be in place to solve these issues? The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. So one of the first things that I think is a problem is that we still actually give and administer the medicine to a physical human being to test it. Right now in today's world, there's no other way to know what it's going to do unless we put it inside of a person. Don't get me wrong, I'm well aware that this is really the only way that we can do it. But the question is, will there be something, some kind of method in the future that would enable humans to be able to accurately model that without actually doing it beforehand? Think about this. Much of what we've done up to this point in time has been to relieve the burden of hard physical labor on people. But in the case of medicine, people still have to bear the burden of taking the medicine. In first in human studies, we're looking at young, typically male patients who receive medicine. Pharmacokinetic data is all collected during a set amount of time to see things like blood levels in medicine, metabolites, presence in urine, half-life. This first in human human has to bear the burden of taking a medicine that no one else in the world has ever taken. We have an idea of what it can do because up until that point, we've already tested it extensively in animals. Mathematical models that you find in literature today are described as in silico models. They're usually physiologically based pharmacokinetic models, that is PBPK. These are subject to and limited to the equations that they're based upon. And we know that the human body can't just be put down to a set of equations. Different humans are going to have different equations. And how many of them would there be? I don't think it's enough to accurately model what will happen in humans. And even if we do use PBPK models today, it's only in conjunction with extensive animal models during preclinical work. How would we be able to do this kind of accurate modeling? Well, what if it was done like this? We simulate the body of a human with a given disease in whatever is a computational device at that time. They might not even call them computers by then. They may have other things. We simulate the life of a specific person inside that device. We can simulate them receiving some kind of drug treatment and then see what happens. That way, we can separate the reality of actually taking the drug beforehand without knowing its risks and prevent any possible tragedies. If the person dies from taking the medicine in the simulation, then don't give it to the person in real life. But we wouldn't just stop there. 
Why do one simulation? Assuming that there's no limitations in resources, why wouldn't we run a simulation of 100,000 instances of the same person to get a stochastic model? If we didn't have any limits on resources, then we could say with some confidence that, for example, 6,000 out of 100,000 instances of the same person inside the simulation suffered a stroke as an adverse event, but inside a total of 76,000 instances did receive a benefit. If the model were really accurate and the validation of this would be the hardest part, then we can say with some certainty that the medicine would have a 76% response rate for this specific person who is the one we modeled the simulation after. If this could be done in real time, then that means that we can test a specific drug candidate for a person with a given disease using a large sample size of a population that's built off of that specific person that eliminates the problems of external validity and bias that comes from our clinical trials today because it centers everything around one person. Now that's provided that we already have a drug candidate ready, but what if we didn't have one ready? Could we have a system upstream the process that could recursively generate these drug candidates based off of data that we have from that person? At that point in time, would it be genomic data, epigenetic information, and maybe some kind of metadata about humans that we don't even know exists today? So then to add to the system of running 100,000 simulations of the same person, we have an additional module that generates drug candidates based off of templates of existing medicines at that time. It would create a batch of, say, 10 compounds. For each of the 10, run 100,000 simulations of the same person collect time-based data on each one of the candidates to find things like response rate, efficacy, adverse events. But then, could we get the system to iterate over several generations of that compound? Once a set has been completed, could the system somehow make additions or deletions to the compound and then repeat the simulation to maximize efficacy and response while minimizing side effects? Could this be a variation on a genetic algorithm where random candidates are created at first and then each subsequent generation of candidates take the highest effect or quote-unquote survivors of the previous generation along with random mutations for each iteration and then run them for several subsequent generations? In this way, we're adding a random element of candidate generation to a larger simulation of random instances of a single person. There would need to be many optimizations to get this to the most ideal drug for this particular patient's needs. So I think using the words genetic algorithm to describe this may close people's thinking today on what this really could be. If we can get an accurate representation of this, then we wouldn't need to rely on what could be arbitrary population-based testing that may not be applicable to a specific person. For example, if the evidence that we have of a medicine working was a trial done in all Chinese people, how could we have any validity of that trial in a population of Africans? In today's world, we would probably do a parallel study in America or Europe in a different cohort, but that problem would essentially be eliminated with a new individual-based system. And this would be truly a system of personalized medicine as we test it on several million instances of the same person. It sounds like we're talking science fiction, but we're not taking any limits into account here because we're thinking of a future with a fundamentally different understanding of the world while accounting for all of the limits that we have today. So to start thinking of what it could be like, we have to remove the premise that what we have now is the best and we need to start thinking and asking what if 
starting with if we didn't have to physically test in animals and humans. But if we have a system like this, then that means that each individual person will receive different medicines for essentially the same disease. My diabetes medicine would be different from your diabetes medicine because they were both created by a system that individualized it to the both of us. How would we be able to deliver to each of us the proper medicine that was generated by the system? Would there be a quote-unquote 3D printer or a printing press of drugs that would be a standard issue household item? Kind of like how a cell phone is typically a standard issue item today. But even then, some people don't have cell phones. So maybe even then, not everyone would get the medicines and that problem would still exist. So in going back to the problems that would be solved by the system, one, an individual would now know with high specificity if a medicine would work for them. The response rate and efficacy would be ideally maximized with a minimization of risks and adverse events. Two, the generalized model would base events less on existing data from other people, that is, data gathered from a clinical trial, and base it on stochastic events using data from that specific person. Three, the ability of the model to adapt to newly developed disease would allow the person to switch medicines at a later time should something come up, as there would be a high likelihood that the millions of instances generated during the first simulation, that one case, like the events of reality, would have been accounted for, and the system can run again to find new potential candidates for the new reality. Four, the distribution can be cared for using what could be ubiquitous technology at some point in the future. And a system like this does additional things that would need the right environment to be established. Keep in mind, this is a decentralization of medicine and drug development. I mentioned that when a clinical trial is done, we take the current standard of care and we compare it to a new medicine. But what if the standard of care is the European standard of care and not the American one? We have that problem today. In some cases, the EU doesn't approve certain medicines for various reasons, one being that they may not think that the benefit outweighs the risk. So what if there is no standard treatment at all established in the EU, but one is established in America? Should American regulators approve a drug based on evidence from a trial that was based on non-American standard of care? Why should we? The converse should apply as well. If EU has the standard of care that the US doesn't, why should they approve a medicine that's based on our standards and not theirs? In some cases, people rag on pharmaceutical companies who do this because if you're comparing treatment versus nothing at all, then you would reasonably hope and expect that treatment would do better. Why else would you do the trial if you didn't believe that? So it's not a fair match. But if there is a standard that is established in a different land, then it may not be clear that the experimental treatment would be better than that standard. This proposed system eliminates that entirely by abstracting away the need for applying population data to one person. We don't need to guess what's going to happen to you based on what happened to others. The decentralization, at least at first, would stop this kind of practice of going with the lowest possible standard of care as a comparator to cream numbers at the top and make it look like the benefits are better than with a standard that could have been greater at baseline to begin with. Provided that the modeling is accurate, it would do away with surrogate endpoints in trials that could have been used as a provider of value in healthcare to appease third-party payers. And it can answer the question, will the medicine work in me? How well will it work? What side effects can I reasonably expect to get from taking this? Not only will those be answered, but those points would ideally be maximized for benefit and minimized for risk. 
we wouldn't need humans to bear the burden of not only having to try the drugs first to obtain data, but we also wouldn't need to wait for people to die to get that data. And we wouldn't need to have things like withholding experimental medicines from patients because of how a trial was designed. All of this bringing us back to Thomas McLaughlin and Brandon Ryan. In May 2010, Brandon Ryan was brought to UCLA Hospital. His melanoma had spread to his spine and he was undergoing radiation therapy. At his randomization to the chemotherapy arm, his mom yelled out, what gives them the right to play God? It doesn't make sense to say we want you for a statistic instead of giving them a chance at life. A week after his first chemo treatment, he was hospitalized, unable to breathe on his own. His cousin Thomas offered to make him brownies to help ease the pain. They laughed. They joked about trucks while in the hospital. And at Brandon Ryan's funeral two weeks later in mid-June of 2010, his cousin placed his hard hat in his coffin and helped carry it to the grave. Thomas McLaughlin would keep fighting melanoma for another three and a half years until February 12, 2014. BRAF V600E monotherapy did appear to extend survival in metastatic melanoma at the one-year mark, but the longitudinal data showed that by around the three-year mark, the survival curves converged. Keep in mind, that was probably because the chemotherapy arm was allowed to convert over to subsequent therapy. But what about the 54% who died in the first year? The later development was that we found out that a second blockade of the pathway downstream helps stem the tide of the resistance that the cancer develops on monotherapy. They need to be used together. So one of the lessons that we learned from this trial is that when a standard of care is really, I don't know, kind of not doing a lot and was established by comparing to actually doing nothing, like in the case of decarbazine, when is a good time to switch patients over to the experimental treatment? When is it a good enough time to say, you know what, waiting for someone to die may not be a good thing to do, given that we already have an idea of how effective the standard of care is. Obviously, a solution of a regulator allowing a switch over to the experimental treatment, maybe too early, could cause some problems. And we know from the early results of this trial that the overall survival didn't really look to be impacted at first. There was a short-term benefit for sure, but a second MEK inhibition would have been needed downstream the process to help stem resistance. But at some point down the line, the system is going to go too far. It's going to lend itself to be too rigid. It's going to lose the support of people and it's going to anger them. And if the right technology is available at the right point in time, the whole system could be burned down and started anew. And while it will create its own set of problems again later, it's going to make our system today look like how we look at medieval medicine today. This is the best that we have, kind of like how that was the best that they had back then. And although our fundamental understanding of the world isn't enough today to create the system that I described, when we get there, this system will no longer be the best that we have. And I hope that humans appropriately recognize when that time comes. Thanks so much for listening. If you'd like to contribute to the show, Heme Review is hosted on anchor.fm and you can contribute to the show. It's not required. It's only if you'd like to. And it's at the URL anchor.fm slash chubbyemu slash support. The link is in the show notes as well as all the references for this episode. Thanks to everybody who has supported thus far. Take care of yourself and be well.